0: Isaiah 53, verses 2-6. through Hear the Word of the Lord. For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Of us all
1: it's good to be with you guys tonight Uh, as Ryan said uh, as he was in the uh, church planting residency over at perimeter uh, we were uh, we became friends uh, and uh, just loved uh, having him uh, over there they uh, they put the church planters right next to us with the young adults uh, department uh, in our our little annex there and so uh, every time every time I say I'm not going to be friends with the church planters. I mean, I really desperately try not to be friends with the church planters because they leave me, see. I like them. They're great guys. And then they leave me. But uh, it was awesome to have Ryan with us. And and it's sweet to be here this morning uh, and see the the fruit of what God's been up to uh, through Ryan and Megan and many of you who have been working hard here uh, for a couple of years. I'm excited to be with you. Uh, you may notice something really familiar. You're, you're pastored by a hillbilly. I don't know if he would describe himself as such or not, but he's a Kentucky boy. Uh, I'm a West Virginia boy. We, sort of, we bonded over that. We were kind of you know, right across the river from each other. And so uh, really, really excited to be uh, with you guys tonight. Uh, as Ryan said, work with young adults. Uh, and so that is, I'll give you the, the uh, sort of brief synopsis of this. Uh, Young adults and young families at Perimeter means that uh, we do a little bit of a ministry for college students that's primarily over the summer. Uh, We do a ministry uh, for uh, young adults, 20-somethings, that's primarily singles. we got a a few folks from here in your church that are actually a part of what we do sometimes on Tuesday nights. Uh, Then we do newlyweds, which is sort of zero to five years. If you've been married, we're trying to help you get uh, on the right track, on the right trajectory in your marriage. Uh, Right Start, which is a premarital counseling program. And then Young Families, which is anyone with children 12 years or under at a 5,000 member church. we got a lot of stuff going on. I'm so pumped just to be with you guys all in mixed up and having fun uh, here tonight. Uh, As I've worked with young adults over the the past decade or so, primarily at uh, Perimeter, I'll tell you one thing that's just been kind of burned into my soul over time. Uh, one thing that I would say I'm, I'm borderline obsessed with uh, is what I'm going to talk about a little bit tonight. Ryan said, hey, will you preach on uh, the first, it's a 6 p.m. service, you can sleep in, you can do what you want. I said, I'm in. He said, you can preach on whatever you want. I said, I'm in. So, turn to Leviticus 1. No, I'm kidding. I kid, I kid, I joke. That's not exactly what I'm what I'm passionate about. I, I'm, I've really I've become passionate over the years of really trying to look into God's Word Uh, and and speak to God in prayer and try to hear from Him about what does it really mean uh, for the the person and work of Jesus to apply to our daily lives. might not be a big surprise. I'm in pastoral ministry. I'm going through seminary. I'll hopefully be done uh, around August that this would be something I'm I'm really pumped up about. I hope that you're sort of pumped up about it too, uh, at least by the end of this evening. Uh, what does it mean to have the person and work of Jesus apply freely to our daily lives? I think yeah, even even if we have a little bit of a theological grasp on that, we're all trying to get a hold of that a little bit, aren't we? Uh, It's what the entire Bible is about. Remember, Jesus explains to uh, the disciples after He raises from the dead that the entire Bible is about Him. The entire Bible is about Him, every page. Uh, So so that must mean it's supposed to mean something for us, right? It's supposed to translate to something in us and and not just be some coincidental trivia for us to know, right? Yes, absolutely, yes. The story of Jesus, the work of Jesus transforms, changes us, right? fundamentally uh, i don't know you know this is a good book a less good book but one that i like is um the outliers by malcolm gladwell i don't know if you've, any of y'all have read that or not uh, i love that book the outliers it talks about uh something that uh, if any of you are familiar with sort of statistics mathematics you know an outlier is one that's numerically distant from the rest of the data in a study. right? The definition is something that appears to deviate markedly from other members of the sample in which it occurs. So the outlier is the anomaly. Right? The oddball. The freak. Or as I like to say it, me. Maybe you too. I don't know. I, I always felt a little bit like an outlier. Uh, I was always a little bit of a loner as a kid. Maybe you felt that way as well, but uh, you know, in high school I had friends. Um, I was kind of friends with all the different crowds, but I never was like in the popular crowd or the athletic crowd or the party crowd. And then on the flip side, I was never really in the unpopular crowd that hung out together uh, or... um, Or even the artsy crowd, even though I'm a musician, or the the Christian crowd necessarily. I always just kind of felt like me, kind of an outlier, kind of a loner, and it gets lonely out there. Maybe you've felt that way in some area of your life as well. I I put money down uh, that you have, you know, where, where everybody else is going in a certain direction and you're just not you are the statistical outlier you're left out and uh, if we're honest in those periods probably wondering where God is uh, in all of it well you may find it a hopeful thing then that the Bible speaks frequently about outliers and outsiders As a matter of fact I think one of the major themes of the Bible is how God came to give hope to all of us that feel a little out of the mainstream. Uh, those of us that feel maybe left out, left behind sometimes, forgotten. Uh, it, it, it's all about that. And over and over again. As a matter of fact, you know, the big story of the Bible, when you, when you look at all the, the little stories and say, oh, this is, this is all kind of pointing to one thing. The big story of the Bible is, is always impressing on us that we don't bring a lot to the table uh, that we are outliers naturally uh, with God, uh, that we, we're naturally outside of the bounds of His, his love, uh, of relationship uh, with Him. Uh, and it's constantly telling us not to try to do something about that on our own. So we're going to see that uh, a little bit in the, uh, the passage that uh, Ryan uh, read over us uh, this evening uh, in Isaiah. I'll read it again. It says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Surely, He's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all near the beginning of this book, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6, when Isaiah is called into ministry. He encounters a manifestation of God's glory and he gives us this incredibly vivid picture uh, that God's righteousness and holiness are terrifying. (laughs) It requires some sort of coping uh, mechanism. He comes uh, into the temple and it's filled with smoke. Uh, and there are these really frightening winged creatures flying around, screaming out God's praise. And Isaiah says he is undone. He realizes in that instant just how deep his sin is uh, and and just how deep uh, the nation of Israel's sin is and just how far apart from God they really are. And what an outlier, what an outsider to holiness that he is, and he just he drops to his knees. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And then the, the Lord sears Isaiah's lips with a burning coal and he, he cleans his lips and he sets apart his lips to speak his message. And it's not a pleasant message. It's not a pleasant message uh, that God gives him to speak. God's people, uh, the nation of Israel, have been torn apart. And so the the larger portion, uh, by far, 10 out of the 12 tribes that that made up the nation uh, are the northern kingdom. uh, And they keep the name Israel. And Isaiah's message from God is primarily one of judgment to this northern kingdom. It's a message that unless they repent, Uh, the kingdom, uh, their inheritance, their very existence is about to be erased for good, gone. Uh, And by the way, the Lord tells Isaiah, hey, they're not going to listen to you. As a matter of fact, uh, their hearts are actually only going to get harder and harder uh, toward me every time you tell them to repent. It's going to be rough. Would you notice in the book of Isaiah, if you start to do a, a bit of an in-depth study, over and over, uh, there's this theme in terms of why. Why the northern kingdom is facing this judgment, curse instead of blessing. Uh, what you see is sort of a cycle. Uh, you have idolatry uh, and impurity and the sins of rebellious, wild living and those things that we sort of think of as bringing on God's judgment, Right? But that's not really what you you see bringing God's judgment thematically in Isaiah, in my opinion. Actually, these are just the first steps of the rebellion. In, In the book of Isaiah, what we see that stirs the wrath of God that incurs His judgment upon His own people is injustice. Injustice. Idolatry leads to Injustice, which leads to judgment. And that's the cycle. Now, that may not be the case in every nook and cranny of the Bible, but I think it's noteworthy uh, that this really seems to be the case in the book of Isaiah, which is one of the more uh, most important prophets in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, Isaiah says the reason that the northern kingdom is facing this judgment is the way that they have treated the outsider, the poor The foreigner, the hungry, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed. And God compares that uh, to the acts of an unfaithful spouse. He's not saying judgment is coming because individual members of the northern kingdom are living loosely uh, and immorally in mass, although that seems to be maybe the case that that is true. Uh, He's saying through his mouthpiece, Isaiah, the entire northern kingdom is being an unfaithful spouse to him by mistreating the outliers in their society. And I believe that God's saying in this book that it's not just mistreatment, but but marital unfaithfulness to him any time that we, his people, uh, do not actively work for justice and thriving, for the least, for the outliers in our society. So his message was heavy, right? And it's it's heavy for us too, because we look at that and we we know we're guilty too. And like the Northern Kingdom, when we're confronted with it, we sort of just want to run away. Maybe you want to run out the door right now. I don't know. Uh, If if I started to just beat you over the head with how good God is and therefore how bad you are, and I only know a couple of you, but you're probably pretty bad like me. (laughs) Probably one of two things happens, right? Despair or optimism. That might sound crazy, but you you either say to yourself, oh, he's right. He's right. I'll never get it together. Why even try? Why try? You have despair in that way. Or maybe, you know, despair can come out in a a little different way. Maybe you make yourself uh, the victim. You say, yeah, I've just, I've had too many disadvantages in life i'll never measure up this is this is just who i am I, this is just how i grew up people just need to get me uh, and things will be fine and and both of those really are reactions of despair or you could you could come at it from a little different angle we, we also sometimes respond with sort of a triumphant optimism we, we could hear how bad we are and say wait that's okay i can fix this i can fix this i can, I can get disciplined right I'll wake up earlier tomorrow. I will eat a better breakfast. I'll read more Bible. I'll pray more, right? I'll run for the first time ever. I mean, it's New Year's Day. Anything is possible, right? Maybe, Kevin Garnett. Or you could also be uh, you could be an, uh, an optimist maybe in a little bit of an angry way. <laughs> right? You say, who is this guy telling me I'm bad? He doesn't have it all together. You're right. I don't have it all together. Uh, but you, sort of, you start building your resume a little bit in your head. I'm kind of people. I serve at the co-op and I serve at church. And I'm a hard worker. And I love God. I know you do this. I do this. Humans do this. Yeah, it's called self-talk. You start telling yourself a narrative that helps you to cope. And some people actually cope via despair. Or, or, or sort of a victim or martyr complex, and, and others cope with sort of a triumphalist uh, optimism. And, and we probably tend to go one direction or the other. I've certainly thought or had these emotions uh, before in my life, probably within the last 24 hours. Uh, but what the prophet saw in chapter 6 in the temple, encountering holiness, is that no amount of work will fix it. No amount of work will fix it. No optimism uh, can, can clean up our guilt. N- no amount of despair or beating ourselves up can take it away either. Our coping mechanisms will never be enough. So, so how do you have any hope? How, how could he deliver this message with any hope? Well, what the prophet saw in chapter 53 that we read in the suffering servant gave him hope. He had hope in the one who would come to be an outlier for them for him see Isaiah experienced the holiness of God and so he knew how nasty he was he was laid low Isaiah is called by God to say some pretty harsh things to the people around him and he actually uses some pretty graphic language we would be shocked by it if it was in our language but Isaiah knew in his heart of hearts that he was just as bad. He was just as bad as they are. He knew he needed atonement as much or more than they did. He knew God had to do it. He knew God had to make atonement. God had to make a way or everybody was toast. Isaiah's hope was in this description of the suffering Servant who would be Jesus. 700 years before Jesus is born, His hope is that someone like Jesus would come for Him. Someone ugly. Someone with no, no form, no majesty, no beauty. Someone sad. Someone despised, rejected, who knew sorrow and grief with no esteem. Someone like you or me. And yet, so, someone unlike us. Holy. Righteous. He, he bore our griefs and sorrows. He was, he was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquity. By His wounds we are healed. There's no one else whose wounds can bring us healing. This is the God-man, Jesus. There's no other death that can ever bring us hope not really i mean people often celebrate at the demise of tyrants or terrorists and can you imagine the party that's going to happen in syria and iraq when isis finally meets their doom it's going to be awesome but nothing no death can take away our death like this They can't save us from cancer. They sure as heaven can't save us from hell. They can't do anything about real death. Jesus, the ultimate insider, became the outlier to bring you in. You see that? This passage is, is really cool. He's talking about sheep a little bit in here. Right? He says it a few times. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And if you were to, to keep reading, it says Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, that he was silent like a sheep before its shearers. And, and we know sheep and goats are, are big symbols in ancient pastoral farming culture. And we know that sheep were sacrificed. The priests would, would lay their hands. Uh, on a sheep signifying the laying of uh, an individual or a family's sin uh, on that animal. And, and then it was sacrificed. And, and Isaiah says actually, actually Jesus is that lamb ultimately. And, and there was this other form of sacrifice in the ancient world as well. The Greeks called it pharmakos. So when there was a disaster or a famine or a plague or an invasion, uh, what they would do is the Greeks would select someone from uh, among their community, and this would normally be uh, this would normally be a disabled person or a slave or a criminal uh, or someone uh, who didn't really bring a whole lot to the community in their minds. Uh, and, and someone who was seen as a, maybe a curse on the community in some way. And, and if he was lucky, he would just be exiled. He would just be told, hey, get out, don't come back, right? Uh, make the gods, uh, angry gods happy again. Some had much worse things done to them, obviously, to purge the community of its curse, make Athens great again, uh, and bring back the days, the golden days of blessing, uh, in Israel, there was, a, there was a little bit of a similar thing. There were sheep, there were sacrifices, and then there were, there were goats too. When the people of Israel were wandering, the Hebrews wandering out in the desert before they came into the promised land, before the sacrifices began to take place in the temple, before there was a temple, they had a camp out in the desert. And in the middle of the camp was a tent. In the middle of the tent uh, was the presence of the living God. Uh, and, And God instructed Moses' brother Aaron, the priest at that time, he said this, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And they called it the scapegoat. You notice anything similar here? In verse 8, Isaiah says Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. He He was sent out. Out of the camp. He became an outlier to bring you in. And if you're in, your heart starts to beat like his. Because you're not just in a club, you're in him. And his heart beats for widows and orphans and foreigners and refugees and the hungry and homeless and oppressed and the downtrodden people. God's will for your life, I promise you, is to be changed by the work of Jesus and shout that out through your active love of people that bring absolutely nothing of benefit to you. What signifies that you've been with Jesus? Transformation. People like us, who are not naturally loving, going to give their lives away. That's what shows you've been with Jesus. Not good theology. That's good and right. Not how much you love worship music, though that's wonderful. It's not what political stance you take or not, what drinks you choose to have or not, your modest dress, what movies you go to see or not. It's how... You've been changed to love the least. The book of James says it this way, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress or affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that book I mentioned earlier, uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, has this section in it uh, about a very strange area of the world where Ryan and I grew up. Appalachia don't call it Appalachia it's wrong talks about Appalachia and he talks about the Hatfields and the McCoys a little bit the McCoys were Kentucky folk the Hatfields were West Virginia folks where I'm from actually know several Hatfields who are descendants of that clan you know any McCoys you got you know some all right all right it's on it's on Uh, (laughs) so you know the Hatfields and McCoys they famously feuded across the West Virginia Kentucky border there Uh, killing each other for years, and uh, Gladwell talks about them a little bit, and uh, he actually starts in this chapter uh, talking about feuds, talking about a couple different families, Howards and Turners in Harlan, Kentucky. You know any of them? No? Okay. The first critical fact about Harlan, he says, is that at the same time the Howards and Turners were killing one another, there were almost identical clashes in other small towns up and down the Appalachians. In the famous Hatfield-McCoy feud, several dozen people were killed in a cycle of violence that stretched over 20 years. In the French-Eversol feud, 12 died. The martin Tolliver feud featured three gunfights, three ambushes, and two house attacks and ended in a two-hour gun battle involving 100 armed men. The Baker-Howard feud began in 1806 and didn't end until the 1930s. And these were just the well-known feuds. One man once looked in a circuit clerk's office Uh, in a Kentucky town and found 1,000 murder indictments stretching from the end of the Civil War in the 1860s to the beginning of the 20th century, and this for a region that never numbered more than 15,000, and when many violent acts never even made it to the indictment stage. That's the stain of the world, if ever there was one, right? It's not unique to Appalachia, but it's a good example. Uh, The world knows nothing other than despair or optimism it does not know faith trust belief in the good news of jesus as its coping mechanism the world has to purge itself of its curse somehow those families in appalachia decided that the other had harmed them wronged them dishonored them cursed them and therefore they had to extract vengeance the greeks purged Their curse by choosing the weak, the unpowerful, the unwise, the uninfluential, and sending them out to fend for themselves. God purged our curse by sending Himself out to death for us to bring us in. And He chose the unwise and the unpowerful and the uninfluential to shower His grace Jesus is the true and better scapegoat. Sent out, bearing your curse to bring you in. He's the true and better sacrificial lamb who chose to take His Father's wrath that should have been unleashed on us. He's the outlier who can sympathize with our weakness and the insider who can bring us into His Father's blessing forever. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He united Himself, the Holy of Holies, to us, unfaithful spouses, to love us. To give us hope in Him. To be with us. To give us the ultimate gift of becoming holy worshipers of His name. To call us, all of us, into ministry. Like His, one of reconciliation. To give us the power of His Holy Spirit that we would be empowered for that ministry you simply cannot become his experience his love his hope and go out unchanged our hope in jesus causes us to love the outliers of society and to labor for their justice and thriving because that is just what god has done for us we want our neighbors to thrive to come to know him to have this real hope in Him as well. We want those that our society deems weak and unimportant to have justice. What is right delivered to them. We are blessed in order to bless the orphan, the foreigner, the poor, and many others. If your heart does not yet move you to work for the justice and thriving of the outlier suggests a couple of things. First, perhaps you still think you're good. Deep down, ask God to convict your heart of your sinfulness. That, that you, like me, deserve to be outside of the camp of His love and care. Ask God to change your heart, and look at Jesus. Go to passages like this in Isaiah 53 or or Ephesians 2 or Romans 8 or or whatever. Just look on Jesus again and again and again and see how great his love was for his people. And, And when you're gripped by that, you will be gripped by love for others as well. And then go work. Work. And maybe you don't have a whole lot of time, but you have a decent job. Uh, you have some extra money, some income to give. Maybe you give by faith. Maybe you work by faith. And you talk to God about how much time or how much money or whatever. That's not my business, right? You figure that one out with Him. But just involve yourself in the struggle of others because the One who involved you Himself in your struggle. I had a story told to me this week about an old friend a guy I love. I haven't talked to him in years, uh, but apparently he no longer considers himself a Christian. Uh, and uh, it broke my heart. And uh, he he started a ministry years ago telling people about Jesus. And over time, that ministry sort of morphed into almost a business uh, and got pretty big and actually famous. And so somewhere along the line, uh, As this thing grew, he decided he didn't believe in this stuff anymore. And um, I've thought about him and prayed over him and wept over him uh, many times just this past uh, week, week and a half, because I love him. And I'm so grieved. And sometime during the week, I thought, I want, I need my heart to be more and more like this. And not just for people I'm close to, but for difficult people too in difficult circumstances who don't necessarily bring a lot of benefit to my life because that is what He has done for me. Let me pray for us. Lord, we confess that it's true. Uh, That we certainly deserve uh, to be outside the camp. We don't deserve Your love, uh, Your goodness, Your grace given to us. Uh, And yet, You've been kind. If we are in relationship with You this evening, You've been so, so unbelievably kind and gracious to us to bring us in. And even if we're not yet, to even be here among Your people hearing this good news, You've been kind to us. And so, uh, Lord, we're we're all over the place in terms of our journey, in terms of our transformation, but wherever we are, whether we're old pros at this Christianity thing or brand new, Lord, we ask that You would do work, Holy Spirit, in our hearts and our souls by hearing Your Word this evening and receiving uh, this grace tonight. Lord, don't let us leave unchanged. Would Would You cause us to trust You more? Even as we continue to pray and sing, take the sacrament of the table, Would you change this? Would you cause our hearts to love you more? Would you cause our hearts to trust you more? And as a result, would we be people, would this be a community that is known for loving and working for the justice, the thriving of the outliers because that's who you've been and what you've done for us. Father, we pray these things, not because we're good people who deserve to get our prayers answered, but because of the blood and resurrection and ascension of Christ Jesus alone.